Good morning once again. Good to see everybody. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Galatians, chapter 3. Now, if you're new with us, welcome. We'll just let you get a little up to speed. We are studying the book of Galatians here at Calvary on Sunday mornings. Uh, going through the book topically based on its main theme, which is the liberty that is ours in Christ. And the section we're currently looking at is liberty from law, uh, which is really liberty from religion and legalism as a way of being made righteous in God's eyes. Or in other words, Paul is telling us how you get to heaven. And listen, there's no greater truth than the truth of how to get to heaven and making sure that when you die, you go there. There's nothing more important in life. I know that the devil's got us busy. And uh, if he can't make you bad, he'll make you busy. But the most important thing that you will ever know is how can I get to heaven? Then getting on your knees and accepting Christ to get you there. So we're in that second major section of our outline, Liberty from Law. And we come down to verse 5, verses 5 to 9. And uh, we've entered into a, a subsection called the truth of the gospel. So liberty from law and number four under that heading is the truth of the gospel. Verse five. Therefore, he who supplies the spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Therefore, know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. Last week, we focused some of our attention on the statement that Abraham knew the gospel. That actually God preached it to him, as Paul tells us in verse Eight. I mean, didn't Jesus say in John eight fifty six to the Pharisees, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day and saw it and was glad? How exactly did God preach the gospel to Abraham? Well, some believe it was when God brought him outside in Genesis 15, verse 5, and told him to look now toward heaven and count the stars if you are able to number them. But actually, there are those who say that what God was really saying, he wasn't really telling Abraham to try to count the stars literally. He was telling him to set them in order, to set them in order. In other words, God was telling him to read the order of the constellations, for they tell the story of redemption. It's called the Maserat. We looked at it last week, also known as the gospel in the stars. So check out last week's study, because we went into this in detail. I think you'll find it fascinating a uh, topic, uh, the Maseroth. And so uh, I leave that up to you. So God preached the gospel to Abraham in nature. Creation declares the glory of God. So uh, we believe he wrote the gospel in the stars. But he's also preached the gospel in the Old Testament. Last week we kind of wanted to include this in last week's message, but we ran out of time. So I promised you we'd start this morning with this and then get into our study for today. But um, God never leaves himself without a witness. Whether the witness of nature or the witness of Scripture, he's always speaking to us. You know, Paul said in 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is given 
by inspiration of God. All scripture. You might be thinking, wait a minute, all the Bible is inspired by God? Even those boring genealogies that I skip over in my devotions when I read the Bible? Yes, even the boring genealogies. If you doubt me, uh, let me show you one of those quote-unquote boring genealogies. Turn to Genesis chapter 5. And I do it too. All right, I do it too. I skip over the genealogies. But if you really wanted to take the time to take a few of them and do what we're going to do right now, I wonder what treasures you will uh, have yielded to you. But let's just do one, okay? Uh, Genesis 5, verse 1. It starts off, This is the book of the genealogy of Adam. In the day that God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Adam means man. Verse 3. Adam begot a son in his own likeness after his image and called his name Seth. Seth means appointed. Verse 6. And Seth lived 105 years and begat Enos. Enos means subject to death. Verse 9. Enos lived 90 years and begot Kynan. Kynan means sorrowful. Verse 12. And Kynan lived 70 years and begot Mahalalil. Mahalalil means from the presence of God. Verse 15. And Mahalalil lived sixty and five years and begot Jared. Jared means one comes down. Verse 18. And Jared lived 162 years and begot Enoch. Enoch means dedicated. Verse 21. And Enoch lived sixty and five years and begot Methuselah. Methuselah means dying, he shall send. Verse 25. And Methuselah lived 180 and seven years and begot Lamech. Lamech means to the poor and lowly. Verse 28. And Lamech lived 182 years and begot a son and called his name Noah. Noah means rest and or comfort. So let's take the meaning of each of these names in this genealogy and put them together in a sentence to see what the Holy Spirit is telling us. You ready? Man appointed to death, sorrowful. From the presence of God, one comes down, dedicated. Dying, he shall send to the poor and lowly rest and comfort. In a boring genealogy, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Kind of sends shivers up your spine, doesn't it? But guys, such is the word of God. Every word in every part of the Bible is inspired by God. As Jesus said in Matthew 4, verse 4, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. All right. Our subject for this morning is the truth of the gospel. And uh, I want you to go back to chapter 1 for just a minute. Galatians 1. And I want to read to you what Paul said to open up this epistle, starting with verse 6. He said, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again. If anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. And guys, 
this is at the heart of Paul's letter to the Galatian churches. He came into their area and gave to them the truth, God's true gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ. But after he left the region, Satan brought in his guys, the Judaizers, false prophets, to twist and pervert the true gospel so that I couldn't save them. We know that only the true gospel can bring new life in Christ. A false gospel, no matter how sincerely it is believed and embraced, cannot, will not save anyone. And yet, that is exactly what Satan has done. He has perverted the true gospel by turning it into a false one that if anyone embraces his false gospel, they will not be saved, even though they think they are. It's all deception. Remember what Jesus said in John 10, verse 9. He said, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved, right? Guys, Jesus and only Jesus is the door, not a door. One of many doors that lead to God. No, he is the door uh, that a person must go through to be saved and enter into heaven. Jesus said it very clearly in John 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father. Nobody gets to heaven except through me. There's only one entrance into salvation, and that is through Jesus Christ. He is the door. But as we have said in the past, let me say it again. Any door that leads to something of great value is going to be locked. And likewise, the door leading to salvation. Salvation is priceless in value. The door leading to salvation is locked and requires, quote-unquote, a key to open it. And what is the key that unlocks the door and allows a person to enter into Christ and find salvation? Well, very simply, it's the gospel. It's the gospel. The gospel is the salvation what a key is to unlock. However, we all know that a key won't unlock a door if it's somehow gotten bent or twisted. A key has to be straight and true if it's going to be used to open a door. And the same is true with the gospel. If Satan can twist and pervert the gospel, that's exactly what Paul said in Galatians 1, verses 6 and 7. If Satan can twist and pervert the gospel, he can keep the door of salvation locked to people, even though, even though they believe in a false gospel with all your heart. Doesn't matter what you believe, only that you believe something. Well, my Bible seems to say something different. Of course it matters what you believe. You can believe a lie with all your heart, not going to save you. But that's why the devil has been working very hard for 2,000 years now to pervert and twist the gospel in an effort to keep the door of salvation locked, listen, to seekers. Some people think Satan is anti-religion. He's not anti-religion. He's very pro-religion. He does some of his best work through religion. He doesn't care if you go to church. He just wants to keep you away from the right churches. I mean, he, there's plenty of Broadway churches out there, right? Tolerant, inclusive. We accept everybody. You look at outside, there's a marquee. We love everybody. Rainbow Bench sitting out front. We, you know, and, and, and people gravitate to churches like that. But Jesus said that's the Broadway to destruction. It's a religious way, by the way. It's religion. This, it doesn't say this way to hell. Nobody would walk a path that says this way to hell. It says this way to God, this way to heaven. It's broad, it's tolerant, it's inclusive. But its way is the way of destruction, as opposed to the narrow way, which is the way of Christ and the cross. The devil knows there's seekers out there. He knows there are people looking to find God. He wants to, misdirect, he wants to twist and pervert the true gospel. And this is where we as the people of God come in. The Lord has commissioned us to go into all the world preaching the gospel to the lost, which is why, guys, listen, we must know the true gospel. We must know it. 
if we're going to be able to then share it accurately with those we come in contact with. Unfortunately, the church in our day is failing miserably, miserably to properly understand and faithfully teach and preach the true gospel in these last days of spiritual darkness and deception. Um, a couple days ago, an article came out by pastor and evangelist Greg Laurie on this subject. Remember now, Greg, and I know Greg, Greg is a pastor and an evangelist. He has a heart for the lost. He said, and I quote, there are, are a lot of people running around today who are what I would call kind of Christians. I know that isn't a theologically correct term, because according to the Bible, either you are a Christian or you're not. But I'm referring to people whom we're not really sure about. They're sort of Christians, or could be Christians, or almost Christians. You may see some things in their lives that lead you to believe they might be followers of Jesus Christ. They go to church. Uh, and talk about God periodically. Maybe they even pray before their meals. Yet there are other things in their lives that seem to contradict what they say, and it makes you wonder where they really are spiritually. I think a lot of people believe they're Christians when they probably aren't, and one of the reasons for that is shallow, anemic preaching. I'm afraid there may be a generation of people running around today who believe they really know God, when in fact they don't know him at all. It's because they have been told to believe, but they have never been told to repent. They have been promised the hope of heaven, but they never have been warned about the reality of hell. In fact, I question whether most Americans have ever heard the authentic gospel message. I know we've heard a lot of preaching and a lot of sermons, but have most Americans actually heard the gospel? And do they have uh, even a basic understanding of it? He said, I read somewhere that 7 out of 10 American adults have no clue what John 3.16 means, which says, for this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not have to perish in hell, but have everlasting life. And barely one third of American adults know what the gospel means. A while back, David Kinneman, CEO of Barna Group, wrote an interesting book called Unchristian, which identified behaviors that so-called believers share with non-believers. So he took two groups, those who professed to be Christians and those who were flat-out unbelievers, and compared their traits and compared their things they did. When asked to identify their activities over the last 30 days, those who considered themselves born-again believers were just as likely to gamble, visit a pornographic website, take something that didn't belong to them, consult a medium or psychic, consume enough alcohol to be legally drunk, use an illegal drug, or lie about someone in retaliation. I would suggest, Greg says, that these people are not Christians who are living outside the will of God, although they, they might be backslidden carnal was the point. But he said, if I had to really bet on it, he said, I would tell you that most of these people are not genuine believers in Christ. Here's what we don't need today. We don't need any more could-be Christians or maybe Christians or kind of Christians. We need no-doubt Christians, people whom we can look at and say, hey, there's no doubt about it. That person knows the Lord. So how can we tell the difference between the no-doubt Christians and the could-be Christians? Well, Greg says, you have to have some hard evidence. You need to see fruit. Didn't Jesus say that? You will know them by their fruit. Well, the article goes on. 
If you're interested in this topic, though, it just so happens that in our Roman study on Wednesday night, we spent three weeks from January 31st through February 14th looking at the qualities, listen, that don't prove a person is saved. So why give the list? Because there's a lot of folks that look at that list and say, oh, no, this means I'm saved because I, I have these things going on in my life. Interesting what a person can be involved in that you think, oh, that, they're a Christian. But that doesn't prove they're a Christian at all. And then we looked at the things, the qualities that make up true saving faith, uh, qualities of true Christians. You might want to go online and check that out, okay? Uh, you know, several years ago, we did a whole series entitled, I Want to Be Saved, Can You Help Me? Now, it was based on Acts chapter 10, where Cornelius was a seeker. He wasn't saved, but he wanted to be saved. He wanted to know the God of Israel. He had a heart for the Jewish people. He was a good guy. And uh, he wanted to know what he and his family needed to do to be saved. So we kind of built a series around that idea where we studied the true gospel in detail, Acts 10. At that time, we said that there are many genuine Christians who really don't know what's involved in a biblical presentation of the gospel. We introduced that study by asking the church, if somebody came to you and asked you, I want to be saved, can you help me? I know you're a Christian. Can you help me? What would you say? Well, I tell them, believe in Jesus. Great. And while that's true, that we are saved by faith alone in Christ alone, is all faith saving faith. You know, the Bible tells us that even the demons believe in Jesus and tremble. They're not saved. And for that matter, what Jesus are you asking them to believe in? Is it the Jesus of the Mormons who believe that he's the brother of Lucifer? I mean, you know who he is. But they don't. You're assuming they do. Is he the Jesus of the Mormons? Or is he the Jesus of the Jehovah's Witnesses who believe he's really Michael the Archangel, a created being who is mighty in power but lesser in power and glory than Almighty Jehovah God? Turn to 2 Corinthians 11. I want to look at 2 Corinthians 11, just verses 3 and 4. You can read the whole passage on your own. It's interesting how Paul came into an area, preached the gospel, some got saved, and when he left, others were thinking about being saved, embracing the message he gave them. But right away, the devil brings in false prophets. I'm thinking of the Judaizers primarily, but probably others, who began to undo what Paul had done. And the Corinthians were another church that was falling prey to this kind of deception. He said in verse 3, But I fear that somehow your pure and undivided devotion to Christ will be corrupted just as Eve was deceived by the cunning ways of the serpent. You happily put up with whatever anyone tells you. And if they preach a different Jesus than the one we preach, or a different kind of spirit than the one we you receive from us, the Holy Spirit, or a different kind of gospel than the one you believe, you put up with it. You put up with it. Guys, let me stop here and say this. This is the reason I feel so strongly about this subject. Because nothing is more basic, nothing is more foundational to our Christian life than knowing and sharing the gospel. In fact, the term evangelical comes from a Greek word that we get the words gospel and evangelize from. When we call ourselves evangelical Christians, what we're saying is we believe in the gospel is presented in the pages of the New Testament and we're committed to sharing it with others that we come in contact with. That was the passion and mission of Jesus, of course. In uh, Luke 19.10, he said, I have come to seek and to save those who are lost. And he gave that mission over to his church upon his ascension back to heaven. We call it the Great Commission, right? 
where we are commanded to go into all the world and share the gospel with everyone we meet. Now, because of this, because of the importance of the true gospel, you would think that um, nothing in the Christian church would be more important to churches, to pastors, than to train young men and women who have received Christ, to then train them in the proper way to go out and share the gospel with others they come in contact with, right? You would think that. But sadly, that's not the case. As we have said, only the true gospel can bring new life in Christ. A false gospel, no matter how sincerely it's believed in, will not save anybody. And that's what we want to just take a couple weeks to look at this subject. We're talking about the uh, truth of the gospel. That's what Paul's fighting in his letter to the Galatians. He's fighting against Satan's lies for the truth of the gospel. So we're going to kind of focus on this for a couple weeks because it's that important. Now, we're not going to do it as in-depth as we did it in in Acts 10 or we revisited in John 10, I think it was. Um, we're We're going to condense it. If you want to get the fuller treatment of this, you can go online and check out those studies. But here's the thing. As we study the New Testament, there are various gospel presentations. Some are more complete than others. They all contain the basics. And so let me share with you a um, one of the more succinct gospel presentations. Again, they all share the core el- same core elements. But turn to 1 Corinthians 15. Because I want you to see this. There's a lot of people who have added things to the gospel. Things that others have to do to be saved. Starting with water baptism. And then, depending on your group, I was raised a Catholic, of course, going to Mass, lighting candles, praying rosaries, all necessary to be saved. Well, what did Paul, the quintessential evangelist, say on the subject? Well, verse 1 of 1 Corinthians 15. Moreover, brethren, I, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which also you are saved. If you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, unless Satan got to you with one of his lies. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received from the Lord Jesus. Paul said, nobody taught the gospel to me. Jesus revealed it to me personally. All right. So he said, here's the gospel I received from the Lord Jesus Christ. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. That's the basic gospel. Very short, very succinct. I don't see anything about lighting candles, praying rosaries, uh, getting water baptized, and so on and so forth. Now, a fuller and more detailed presentation of the gospel is the one Peter gave in Acts 10. I want to turn there. When he was sent by God to preach the gospel to Cornelius, the Roman centurion, and his family and servants. I'm just going to read to you um, verses 36 to 42. Remember now, the Holy Spirit told Peter to go with some men that are going to be knocking at the door soon and follow them to the house of Cornelius. And so Peter did that very thing, and now here he is, and he's preaching to them. Verse 36, the word which God sent to the children of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. That word you know which was proclaimed throughout all Judea and began from Galilee after the baptism which John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. 
And we are witnesses of all these things, which he did both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, whom they killed by hanging on a tree on the cross. Him God raised up the third day and showed him openly, not to all people, but to witnesses chosen before by God, even to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. They were eyewitnesses of his resurrection. Verse 42, And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that which uh, that it is he who was ordained by God to judge the living to be judge of the living and the dead so the first element of the gospel presentation I'd like to share with you this morning and we'll only do this one isn't really part of the gospel itself what do you mean well when I say that I mean it isn't an essential doctrine for salvation it's more the introduction in other words, it's the motivation to get people moving in the direction of salvation. Here it is. First of all, there is a day of judgment coming. Now, you don't have to believe that to be saved. You believe everything else we're going to present. But certainly, without this as the kind of motivator, and, and this was weaved into most of the gospel presentations in the New Testament. Here's the thing. Most of our modern-day evangelism is based on the love of God. And the love of God is an awesome thing, right? Almost all modern-day evangelism is based on God's love. God loves you, has a wonderful plan for your life, blah, blah, blah. I hate that phrase, by the way, but okay. God does love you, and God does have a wonderful plan for your life, but guess what? That ultimate plan's in heaven. That's wonderful. On earth, not so much, because we're going to be in a war with the devil every single day. It's not going to be easy. And there are times when he's going to race at us like a flood and overwhelm us with, uh, with discouragement and doubt and, and so on and condemnation and whatever. So it's not always going to be easy. Yeah, ultimately he does. Well, he, we know he loves us. And that's a wonderful plan for our life because we're going to wind up in heaven someday. <laughs> but between the time you say yes to Jesus and he takes you home, you know, some rocky road, some rough times. Now, he's with us, and greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. So even in those rough times, stormy seas, we can rejoice in him. But it's not going to be easy. But guys, the introduction to the gospel, or at some point in the presentation you weave it in, is that there is a day of judgment coming. Now, this is sprinkled throughout the whole Bible, especially the New Testament. In fact, God gave us a whole book on coming judgment. That's the book of Revelation. But in Acts 10.42, Peter said, And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that it is he who was ordained by God to be judge of the living and the dead. Jesus Christ is coming back to judge the living and the dead. 2 Timothy 4.1, Paul said to Timothy, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. This is where it gets a little dicey, because most unbelievers will accept a God of love, but will not accept a God who judges sin. Only those people that the Holy Spirit is really working on are going to accept talk about coming judgment. I, I believe that. I could be wrong. I just believe that those people, and, you know, Jesus was all about preaching the gospel, 
yes, to save people, but also to weed out phony disciples. Jesus Christ was not interested in big crowds. Oh, look, Peter. Look at how many people showed up to my, to my crusade today. He could care less about numbers. He was looking for hearts. And he periodically chased off would-be disciples to focus on what was true, hearts that were open. And he did it by saying the hard stuff, you know? And so when we talk about coming judgment, very important that we, we always do it in love, but we have to speak the truth. The word gospel, well, you know, means good news. And as I've always said, it implies the presence of something bad, right? Somebody runs in, I got good news. Probably something bad's going on that they got good news that it's going to solve the problem, okay? The bad news that makes the gospel such good news is that man having rebelled in the Garden of Eden was doomed to spend eternity apart from God in hell. Because at that moment, God cursed Adam, Eve, and the family of Adam who would come throughout all of human history. Every human being born into this world physically is born a descendant of Adam, and therefore uh, the blood curse uh, harbors upon them. And that blood curse is a condemnation, is a, uh, where they are uh, condemned to hell. Um, people often say, well, I know that I'm not perfect, but when I stand before God, I think I'm going to be able to convince him I was good enough to be let into heaven. Whoa. I hope you don't do that. I hope you don't do that because you're, you're going to lose. And here's why. You're not getting your day in court when you stand before him on judgment day. The case has already been decided. You're guilty. The verdict was rendered back in the Garden of Eden. You're guilty. You're a descendant of Adam. You're guilty. And someday when you die, you're going to stand before Jesus Christ at the great white throne judgment, Revelation 20, verses 11 to 15, and he's going to pronounce your penalty, your, your sentence, uh, the penalty for your sins. It'll be the sentencing phase, if you will, of a, what we would think of a court case. Uh, you know, the verdict is rendered, you're guilty, you come back, I don't know, a few weeks, a month or so, uh, and you stand before the judge and he pronounces the sentence. That's, that's what we have in view here. Remember what Jesus said in John 3. The Son of Man did not come into the world to condemn the world. But the, the, the first time when he came, he didn't come into the world at his first coming to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And he who believes is not condemned or saved. He who does not believe is what? Condemned already. You don't get your day in court to, to plead your case and maybe convince the judge that you're really a good person, good enough to get into heaven. That's the bad news. All descendants of Adam... Everyone born into this world is born a condemned sinner. And the judgment of Adam abides on the whole human race. A judgment that everyone will be forced to endure, and there's nothing any of us can do to escape that judgment in and of our own strength, works, moral goodness, or whatever. The good news is that God so loved us, he saved us from hell by sending his son to die in our place. I'll have you turn to Ephesians 2, and let me read to you John 3.16 as you're turning. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever would believe in Jesus Christ would not have to perish in hell, but would have everlasting life. 
Ephesians 2, verses 4 to 6, after Paul laid out our predicament, our dilemma, we're all lost sinners. The wrath of God abides upon all of us, but God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. By grace you have been saved. Grace means a gift. Getting something we don't deserve. But something God is freely offering because of what Jesus did on Calvary's cross. He paid the price. God couldn't just offer sinners heaven without a basis. Sin had to be judged. It had to be paid for. So either we receive Christ and his blood is stamped on our ledger paid in full. Or we have to pay for those sins ourselves which will take eternity. Now, you see how important it is to reach people with the gospel. At this point, many Christians today would say in response to this, well, I, I don't believe we should talk about judgment when we present the gospel. God's a God of love. And we should use love, not judgment and fear, to win people to Christ. Hey, look, if that's how you feel, I understand where you're coming from. I really do. Because I, too, would rather talk about the love of God when I witness the people. Um, but know this, that deleting any talk of hell and judgment from the gospel presentation is simply not biblical. Again, I can give you dozens of verses on this. I'll just read to you what Jude said. One chapter, verses 22 and 3, he said, look, and he, the context is when you go out sharing the gospel, on some have compassion making a distinction. So some people are broken already. They know they're, I've met a few, not a lot, but I have met a few. When you go out witnessing to people or whatever, and there are some people that will acknowledge, yeah, I'm a sinner. My life, I, I've messed things up bad. I know I'm a sinner. I know I'm going to hell. Now, a person like that, you don't have to beat over the head with coming judgment. They've already acknowledged they're sinners. So you kind of come around in a symbolic way, put your arm around and go, hey, you know what? Praise God that you acknowledge. I had to. I, I know where you're coming from. Look, I just want you to understand something. God loves you. And he gave his son to die for you so that you and me as sinners could become righteous people in the eyes of God, a children of God, right? Just save some with compassion. You put on the, the velvet gloves, okay? Others, you take off the velvet gloves and you put on the boxing gloves, right? Those MMA ones, those thin ones that really hurt when they get hit by them. Exactly, no worries. So, but others, Jude said, but others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire. Sometimes you got to hold a person's feet to the fire, right? And you have to tell them, you got you to let the Holy Spirit kind of let you gauge the situation. Uh, how, how do I need to handle this person or, and this person? And make a distinction. One size doesn't fit all when you're talking about presenting the gospel. But as I've said before, let me say it again. Jesus talked about hell more than anyone else. That shocked some people. In fact, he talked about hell so much, he talked about it more than heaven or even love. Why? He didn't want people to go there. Guys, without any talk of coming judgment, listen, the gospel is reduced from an emergency alert siren to happy talk. To happy talk. The gospel message 
isn't designed to make people feel good or happy about themselves. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Depending on who you're talking to, they might be thinking all kinds of wonder. Well, he wants to prosper my business. He wants to have uh, give me the biggest, best car in town, biggest house, make me wealthy. You know, depending on who you're talking to, this is what people are getting fed today. Well, let me just ask you to think about this. The gospel was never designed by God to make people feel happy or good about themselves. It's a brutal indictment of our sinful lives and how we were so bad, God had to leave his throne in heaven, his glory, to become one of us, to die in our place, because sinners can't die for sinners. It would take the righteous dying for the guilty. That's how bad we were. I was telling first service that there was a, a gentleman, I'm not going to tell you his name, he used to pastor a crystal cathedral, if that helps at all. <laughs> and this guy wrote a book, Self-Esteem, The New Reformation. And in that book he said, you don't pay more than something is worth. The car's worth $500, you don't pay 5000 for it. You only pay what something is worth. The fact that God was willing to die for us tells us we are worth an awful lot. You know? I mean, we must really be something that God was willing to die for us. Wow! And he made this incredibly blasphemous statement. The cross sanctifies the ego trip. This is what's out there, folks. This is what is out there. And he's not the only one touting that line. The gospel is a brutal indictment of our sinful lives and how only by Jesus dying for us on the cross is there hope of escaping the fires of hell. In that regard, guys, as we have said before, the gospel is a warning for people to flee judgment, to flee judgment by running into Christ for safety. It's kind of like a tornado siren, right? Every town now has a tornado warning system, a siren. If that thing ever goes off at 3 o'clock in the morning, how do you feel? Feel all warm and fuzzy? Oh, I love that sound. That always makes me feel happy. No, fear grips your heart. Because you know what that siren means. Run and find shelter. Something bad is coming. That's what the gospel is. It's God's warning siren. Something bad is coming. It's called judgment. And you don't want to be unprotected when it comes upon this world. Run to Christ. He's your, he's your refuge. Take refuge in him. Receive him as your savior. He'll protect you from the judgment that is coming. But guys, too many pastors and preachers today have stopped urging people to receive Jesus as the one who will save them from hell. Instead, they have turned him into a sanctified butler whose job it is to save them from all the discomforts of life. As one pastor put it, for these folks, prayer then becomes ringing the little bell, calling for butler Jesus to bring them up another pillow, make their life a little more comfortable. That's all he's there for, to serve me. You know, John the Baptist and Jesus were both hellfire and damnation preachers. John probably is a little more animated we'll say than jesus although i don't know that but jesus said you know i'm like the one who would not quench a smoking flax or break a bruised reed what does that mean i'm gentle 
He said, come to me. I am meek. I am lowly and gentle of heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. You can be a hellfire damnation preacher and still do it with love and compassion. You don't have to be a red-eyed, fire-breathing, veins-popping-out kind of a nut job where you're out there screaming at everybody, okay? A hellfire and damnation preacher is somebody who preaches about hell within the context of God's love and so on. The whole point in preaching the gospel is to tell people that they are lost and hell-bound, but that God loves them and gave his son to save them. Nowadays, though, when you say God wants to save you, we're out there witnessing. We are living in a post-Christian era, okay? Um, it's really obvious when you talk to people, if you run into people and you start talking about spiritual things, if they even want to do that. But when you tell them, you're wanting to show the gospel, and you tell them that Jesus wants to save you, most people today are going to go, save me from what? That's how far away from our roots, our heritage we are. Save me from what? And if they turn to the church, they're not going to get much help anymore because uh, the answer from a lot of pulpits today seems to be save them from poverty or depression or, or low self-esteem. Not from the fires of hell. We don't even talk about hell in this church. It uh, makes people uncomfortable. Oh, wow. So you make them comfortable on earth and launch them into a Christless eternity in hell forever. That, that makes a lot of sense. All because what? You don't want to look bad? You don't want to challenge people with hell because you want to build your church? Let me end with this. The preaching of coming judgment, guys, used to dominate pulpits all across this nation and was used by God. I was telling first service, if you have a chance and you're in some kind of an old bookstore and you can find a hymnal or several hymnals from like the 1800s. Leaf through the pages. Notice how many songs were written, hymns, talking about coming judgment and how God has saved us once we accept Christ. It's loaded in, in the songs that the church used to sing. Today, hardly a song. Hardly a song. But God used the preaching of coming judgment to be the basis for some of the great revivals, and periods of great awakening in our country's history. We all have heard of Jonathan Edwards and his famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Can you imagine that in a marquee out in front of a church? Today's message, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Keep driving down to the next church where on the marquee it says, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Well, I won't go to that message. Listen to what Jonathan Edwards in that famous sermon said. He said, and I'm quoting, Unconverted men walk over the pit of hell on a rotten covering, and there are there are innumerable places in this covering so weak that they will not bear their weight. And these places are not seen. The wrath of God burns against them. Can you even imagine a message like that being preached today from most pulpits in this day of political correctness where the goal of so many preachers is to keep things positive, upbeat, non-confrontational, and so on? Again, because the goal is to build a big church, not to, big, to make strong disciples. How does a person escape the judgment of hell? Very simply, by believing the gospel. Well, what's involved in the gospel? That's what we want to look at over the next couple of weeks. We want to revisit this topic next week, looking at the truths that make up the gospel. So come on back. Again, we're not going to give the full uh, treatment of what we've done in the past. We'll just give you a condensed version. You can always go online and listen to the, the fuller uh, teachings on this subject. 
But um, if we're going to look at the true gospel, as Paul is trying to present it, this is a, some information we need to have. So come on back next week, God willing, we will continue on. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your truth. Your word is truth. Thank you, Lord, for loving us uh, to such a degree that, uh, Lord, you have sent your son. Lord Jesus, you came down willingly to die in our place. We thank you, Lord, for your great love wherewith you loved us. And we pray, Lord, that you will continue to bless these studies in your word, that we all might have a working knowledge of really what the gospel is all about, that we can share it with those we come in contact with. We thank you, Lord. We ask you to just to keep blessing these studies. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen.